folks. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you on this Saturday morning of June 4th. And uh, I've got a friend of mine next to me who uh, we've done some podcast episodes in the past, and Spencer has helped me several times uh, in other things outside of uh, us having conversations with an audience. But Spencer Wright, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bill. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Glad to have you here. Let me share my screen. Uh, you thought you would help us kind of set up this conversation. The, what's going to happen here is, um, and by the way, just a little story. Um, I have a uh, a friend who left the church maybe, you know, five years ago, six years ago. And he came across this video, this ancient temple rights restored thing that we're going to talk about today. And um, he, it ended up impressing him enough that he slowly got on this journey to going back into the church. I, I hear very few stories of people who deconstruct the Mormon religion and then and know, know the messiness and then end up back in it. And uh, this friend of mine is one that, that did that. He, he ended up having some things that happened that he couldn't explain. This video was a big part of his journey. And, um, and, and aside from that, I, I then uh, saw on Mormonism Live, some other person shared the video as well. Like within 24 hours of me um, getting this story from my friend about how he ended up back in the church. And so when I saw it on Mormonism Live and him having said it, I'm like, dang it, that feels like, uh, that feels like karma telling me that I got to, and of course, you know, we, you and I don't believe in karma, but um, karma telling me that I needed to cover this, that we needed to dive into this and see if there were any um, good ways to reconcile it. And you jumped in and made a comment, which once I knew you were sort of interested in tackling it, I, I knew that I could find another person uh, with a rational mind who could help us kind of tackle some of these ideas. So Spencer Wright, before we dive into the actual YouTube video, um, maybe take us through uh, some of this, some of these ideas and let's uh, see if we can't help the audience set up how they're going to think about these things. Yeah. So, so most people are very familiar with deductive reasoning, which is essentially that you start with premises and from those premises, you reach a conclusion. Um, and so uh, if, if the premises are true, then the conclusion is guaranteed. And so we're moving, we're moving left to right. But, but even though like uh, Sherlock Holmes always talks about how he's using deductive reasoning, that's not, that's not actually the kind of reasoning that he's engaged in. He's actually engaged in a reasoning called abductive reasoning, which is, a which is different than deductive reasoning. But we actually are almost always engaged in abductive reasoning, not deductive reasoning. And so what we're going to talk about is this is what abductive reasoning is, how it works, and then how we can apply it to uh, the, the, the evidences that we have in the video here. So if we can jump to the next slide. So... <clears throat> There we go. Uh, so abductive reasoning is not talking about be, like being abducted by aliens. It's it's talking about like removal of of uh, unne unnecessary causes. So unlike deductive reasoning that goes left to right, abductive reasoning is actually going like right to left. So so instead of uh, starting with the, the cause or with the premises, we're starting with the conclusion or the, the effect or the observations. Um, and then we go back to 
uh, trying to figure out a cause or a theory to explain those that effect or that observation. Um, unlike deductive reasoning, where the conclusion is guaranteed by the premises, uh, the, the the theory or the cause that that we're, we're that we're theorizing. Uh, is not guaranteed, but we're basically just trying to come up with how do we explain these uh, these observations? So we can jump okay. to the next step. Yep. Okay, so uh, this is actually used all the time. We use it in legal reasoning. You can think about uh, we have a certain set of facts in a, in a legal case. Uh, and so the facts are the same, but what we have, the prosecution has a theory, the defense has a theory. Uh, we're talking about a criminal case. Of course, the prosecution bears the burden for, for proving their, their theory. But the point is, is that there are two, two or more possible explanations for a certain set of facts. Uh, and then we can jump to the next one. The, the, in, in science, we're actually doing exactly the same thing. We have a certain set of facts, and then from those facts, uh, there are two or more potential explanations for those sets of facts. Yeah, and as you're pointing out, like the idea of this would be when I drop an apple, it falls to the ground. So I see this end result. I see the fact that no matter what I do, everything I let go of falls down to the ground. And so I have this conclusion, and now I'm trying to figure out why that happens. And so now I'm looking behind it, essentially going like, let me try to come up with a good explanation for how we got here. And um, whatever explanation best fits the data is is what we're going to go with. Yeah. And th this is like a perfect example, too, of, say, of saying like, OK, here we have the universe. How did the universe get here? Well, none of us were here at the beginning of the universe, even assuming that it had a beginning, you know, just to start with. Yeah. Uh, and so we have multiple theories to explain all of the, real the reality around us, the planets and the stars and everything like that. And so so once again, we, we don't get we can't guarantee that that's the explanation, but there are certain heuristics that we can use to. Uh, to come to what is the most likely, what's the best explanation. There's a yeah. reason why we we kind of tend toward the Big Bang theory as opposed to the steady state theory. And it's essentially that's what we're doing. This is the kind of reasoning that we're engaged in. Gotcha. Okay, so, so the next slide is what essentially are the, the scientists and the lawyers doing? What they're doing is they're trying to balance the equation. So what we're trying to do is say over on the right hand side of the equation, we have the facts. We have the, the, the five like in the examples below. And then over on the left hand side, we have uh, theories to account for that. So like you can see in the first the first one, uh, the first equation down there, two plus three equals five, that balances. That may not be the right answer. It might be three plus two, you know, it might be if we're if we say we have five fruit, it might be two apples and three pears or three apples and two pears, whatever the case is. We don't know exactly, but from the facts, we know that there's got to be something that makes up five units of whatever it is that that would that that are the the evidence. We know that if if you can only come up with two plus two, then you're you're working with something that's an insufficient explanation. That's that doesn't that doesn't account for the the evidence that we see. And if we have a two plus seven, we know that we've got way too much. We've got too much explanation. We've got th th that that explanation is not actually not a good explanation because it uh, it's got unnecessary inference in order to to reach to five. And so what we're trying to do is account for the facts without coming up with too much inference. And that's the basic gist of what we're doing with abductive reasoning. Again, and maybe can't guarantee. Yeah, and maybe to a note, like there, you could be, you know, four minus one plus two divide, you know, you, you could make the problem super long, but 
we really are looking for the simplest explanation that there is for any problem that we come across or any connection we're trying to make. Yeah. So, and perfect. And so like, like as a using a concrete example, we could say we see a broken glass on the floor. We, we come back home. We don't, we don't know what happened to that glass, but our observations are, we see a broken glass on the floor. We happen to also observe that there's a cat in the room. Yeah, and so yeah. we can, you know, knowing, knowing kind of the behavior of cats, which is also from observations, we can come up with say, here's the, here's the units of work that is necessary to push a glass off of a table onto the floor. And we say the cat is a sufficient cause, sufficient explanation for that. And so someone else might come up and say, well, what if an alien broke into the house and, uh, and and push the glass off the floor. Well, okay, that's that's sufficient. It will it will cover the explanation because we can assume we can hypothesize a alien that is you know powerful enough to, to break a glass off. But now we're have talking about what's all the work that we have to get from the alien from another planet to here to do that. It's like we're using way too much work to try to explain what's going on here. Right. But we could even right. just say the cat across the street. And say, well, what about the, how did the, okay, sure, yeah, that cat, but how did he break into the house? How did, how did he get up here and then leave without leaving a trace? It's like, once again, we're just, we're using too much work. We're, we're invoking too much work in our explanation when and, the cat yeah. in the room explains it sufficiently. And to note that this is the game that happens in Mormon apologetics is that apologists come up with an answer that you go like, oh yeah, like maybe that could happen. But the reality is the moment you make it the, the least simplest explanation, the overly complicated solution. Um, the moment you need more allowances and conjecture, as you always say, uh, you essentially are off talking about something that's less than the most rational explanation. And so in this instance, for instance, so if you, if you make it the cat across the street, you're just, you don't need to do that. It's unnecessary. There's a cat already in the, in the kitchen. Now, again, we may come to find out that something else happened, but until we actually learn that information, our responsibility in being critical, logical thinkers is to go with the simplest explanation that deals with the data and can come up with that solution, correct? Yep, yep. Because the, the alien theory is sufficient, but it's far more than sufficient. It's, it's too, it's too, uh, it's unnecessary, essentially. Yeah. So that's what Think about it in do. degrees of absurdity, right? Like it, <clears throat> it's more absurd to ask for an alien or Bigfoot or a raccoon even to have jumped into the house and left without you knowing it, the cat in the kitchen is sufficient until new information comes forward. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we can jump to the next slide. Um, and so then it's important also because we talked about that any theory, no theory is guaranteed. And so what we're kind of looking for is the best theory so far. And I like to think of this as like yeah. the, the the fastest runner in the world, right? It's like we say that this person is whoever won the the, the Olympic, you know, the, the 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 fastest fastest human in the world Olympic race. Well, yeah. Yeah. next Olympics somebody else could could get a faster time, right? And so what we're what we really mean when we say the best theory that what we really mean is the best theory so far. There might be uh, somebody else comes along who's able to, to make better sense of the data and come up with a better theory. Uh, but what, we, what we're what we saying is 
out, out of the available theories that we can even think of, this is the best theory so far. But what, what we can know for sure is that the person who took second place and the person who took third place and, and, and on and on, they're definitely not the best theory so far. Right? They're definitely not the best runner. And so like the alien theory, we don't know that the cat knocked the glass off the table, but we can be pretty sure that the alien didn't because we have a cat there to, to account for the explanation. Yeah, and maybe to add a note there, it sometimes apologists suggest that there is that their answer is the better answer, but we just haven't discovered it yet. In other words, the fastest runner could be in some tribe and in, in the uh you know, jungles of, of Africa or something. And um, he could exist and he just isn't found and able to participate in the Olympics. And so you can propose solutions that we don't know, like maybe, but the reality is our job is to go with the runner who is demonstrated he's the fastest until new data comes forward and tells us demonstrably that there is somebody in Africa who does run faster. Yes. And yeah. so what we're and so the, the problem is what you just did right there was you kind of added to the uh, the uh, the conclusion side, the observation side. And we can do that. Right. We can always go in and add any kind of hypothetical observation we want to the observation side in order to make our theory fit. We can always do that. And it's really easy to do that. Uh, but what we're trying to do when we're using abductive reasoning, like if if uh, if I was in court, you know, on, on trial for something and somebody started doing that with the facts instead of just using the facts themselves, then we're it's not a fair trial. Right. If somebody's right. if somebody's saying, well, what if some apples started going up instead of down? Well, OK, yeah, we can talk about that, but that's not our observations. Right. Yeah. And so we're trying to stick with who's the fastest runner just for the observations that we actually have, not for the observations that we can theoretically have, because theory needs to go on the other side of the, of the equation. Perfect, love it. Okay. Okay, so uh, the, the, the point of this slide was just essentially to say, babies know how to do this. Babies already understand this is the concept. So, so here I, I give two possible theories for a certain set of observations. And so what we can pretend is that uh, there's a mom standing in the room. The baby sees the mom. Mom leaves the room, comes back. Baby sees the mom again. Mom leaves. Baby comes back. So we have three observations of these moms. Well, one potential theory could be that each time the mom came back, it was actually swapped out and it's a different mom. It's like a... a, a a, a fake version of the mom every time. Another theory is that it's just the same person every time. Well, ba a baby understands they see the mom day in and day out, and they're, they're, they, they, their brain uh, naturally wants to go to the conclusion that they're seeing the same person every time. Right. And so, th so this is this is actually more of the rational. The, what, the point of this is to show that what happens is when we see observations that are themselves indistinguishable from other observations, we just assume it's the same cause. And yeah. that's basically yeah. the kind of thinking that we need to use when we're using abductive reasoning. Yeah. And the apologist would say, well, maybe mom has a twin. But the reality is until mom tells us that she has a twin, our responsibility is to start with the conclusion that this, that's the same woman who comes into the room. Yeah. And notice again that in order for that, for the apologist thinking to work, we have to pretend a theory over on the observation side. We have to pretend that there is a twin that we don't know about or that there's some, you know, secret runner in Africa or whatever the case is to, to make the theory work. They're always, they're always trying to, instead of just working with the observations and accounting for the observations, 
they're working with pretend observations to come up with a pretend theory for those pretend observations. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and so uh, this is essentially just saying what I what I just said in the last slide. But the, what we're doing is uh, the the baby is treating the indistinguishable observations as having the same cause. So we we don't want to jump ahead and do that. Gotcha. Uh, okay, and so in this slide, essentially we're we're kind of getting into the the uh, the, the video, yep. the the compass and square stuff. And so, do you have that that slide available to where the one that we're showing with the the oh yeah let me issue. um yeah let me see here give me a second i have it on this <clears throat> computer so let's uh i gotta find the first this is the one thing folks is i gotta find the first timestamp, and it'll just take me two seconds here i think it was about 7 45. oh you weren't that I was, I, not the 225 one here's that picture the picture of the Nuan Fushi. Is it this right here? That's the one. Yep. Okay. Perfect. And so, so, uh, and do, do you want to kind of lead into what the, the point of the video is? And yeah. So, um, this gentleman creates a YouTube video where he, uh, shows the prophets, uh, seers and revelators leaders in the church claiming that the temple endowment, the rites and rituals that go on in the temple and some other kind of tangential facets of Mormonism are tied to ancient Christianity, ancient Judaism, and then, and then also ancient um, rites throughout the world, for instance. And so what he proceeds to do over the course of a 25-minute video is he is going to show us all of these incredible connections between uh, Mormon temple rites and rituals uh, and all that goes on there against the old world and and to basically show that Joseph Smith nailed it. He gets bullseye after bullseye after bullseye. And I will say this is done, I think when you're when you're somewhat, uh, I use naive as a really innocent thing, like we can't know what we don't know. Um, when you are only see through the lens of Mormonism and uh, you don't know how to critically think because your church has really taught you how to accept, um, uh, ideas without really thinking critically about them, it becomes very natural for this video to kind of hold some weight. It feels as though it's got some um, weight to it in, in terms of how it persuades you. Um, but as we're going to get into, these arguments tend to, a lot of them, there's a few in here that I'm like, yeah, I, I might actually side with the video on this one. But for the most part, I think most of this video is explained um, in better ways when we deal with it by reasoning the way you're trying to teach us. Um, and so, so this section right here, he was talking about, um, and I, I don't know how much we want to go into what the temple actually <laughs> talks about, but just referring essentially to what I'm actually what okay with what whatever said. you want to do. Oh, okay. Like, okay. No, no problem. I'm, so I'm not, we're not I'm worried about offending anybody. Okay. Okay. So, so his, uh, his point was he's basically trying to use uh, symbolism from the Mormon temple and then connecting it back to how people use those same symbols anciently. And presumably, I guess he's getting the idea that Joseph Smith had some kind of connection to God that allowed him to learn these symbols. Yeah. Um, and he uses this example of 
these uh, mythological characters from China named Nuan Fuxi. Uh, and so and they're, they're the first rulers of China. They're, they're basically a little bit like Adam and Eve in that regard, but they're also a little bit like Noah, or at least the story of Noah, where they, they had dealt with, the, had to deal with the flood, had to fix a, uh, fix a problem in the, in, in the, the dome of the, of the, the heavens, uh, and they're a little bit like the Avengers, where they had to go around and find the, the infinity stones to, to perform that task. Um, but the reason why he uses these, uh, these characters is because they are holding a compass and a square, the, the, you know, the, the carpenter's square, and, uh, and, and which is, has always been very interesting to me. In fact, even the phrase uh, in Chinese, there's, there's a phrase called, uh, called uh, which basically means the right way to do things, the proper standard, the, the appropriate you know, thing to do, and the rule, the standard in that. And it literally means compass and square. And so I, I always loved this connection, uh, even as a, as, a, as a believing Mormon. I just thought this was such a cool thing that these guys have a compass and a square. Yeah. However, now if we can jump back over to the to the uh, slideshow, yeah. and so we, we have these um, we have these these guys who are from China who are using a compass and a square. We also know that Joseph Smith has a Masonic connection where the compass and square is the most prevalent symbol in in the, the Masonic belief. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to account for joseph's compass and square why did he use that symbol uh himself knowing that there are also the facts that joseph had a, a masonic connection and so in the first e equation what we can say is well we can assume that there's a chinese source but we also have to assume that there's a connection that joseph has to china that he was even aware of nuan fushi right um but if we say now the second one we say there's a th that joseph used the masonic source for his compass and square we're now using less conjecture less inference in order to come to the same conclusion and so again Sure, yes, we, and I don't know that anybody's even making the claim that Joseph is using Nuan Fushi for the thing, but I'm just saying we could theorize that. And if we did theorize that, we would have to come up with more inference, more theory than is necessary to account how Joseph came up with the, uh, with the, the compass and square. Yeah, masonry being the source is the cat on the table next to the broken glass. Exactly. Meanwhile, yes. the Chinese source is the alien that you're now you're you're taking a leap. You're going, look, I could go with this easy reconciliation, but instead I'm going to add extra allowances, more inference, more conjecture. And now we have an overly complicated reason for why. And, and it may not seem overly complicated to the audience. There's some of these that may feel more like a 50-50 proposition, but the reality is even if it's 55-45, you have to go with the 55 until new information comes. You can't, you can't assume the 45 sounds great, so I'm going to use it. The reality is a rational thinker has to always go with the solution that requires the least amount of conjecture and allowances. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. you've always used the example of like a, a, a rattle on the roof, and you know it could be a pine cone, uh, falling off a tree. It could be a raccoon that, you know, jumped out of the tree onto the roof. You walk outside, you don't see a raccoon, but you see a bunch of pine cones that have fallen off the roof from the tree. And again, both of those are fairly reasonable. Uh, but the reality is that the pine cones is what you, what you see 
um, data-based as the most um, reasonable resolution for your problem. Yep, we, we have to start with the, the orange side of the equation and only use the necessary green to come up with whatever is the, to, that accounts for the orange side. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. And so next then in the, in the next slide, here's just another potential theory, which is that Joseph got it from God. Right. So so we could just we could even say, yeah, God told Joseph to do this. But in order to do that, we have to come up with all kinds of conjecture God, that God exists, that God is the source, that revelation exists. You know, God loves Mormonism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, God, God loves Mormonism and he even cares about, you know, compasses and squares and whatever the case is. And so yeah. so, again, if we were just trying to figure out what is the amount of work that's necessary to account for this explanation, we're literally now talking about an infinite amount of work because God is, you know, all powerful. It's kind of like even the idea of like saying, how did you find your keys? And if you were to say God was, was the source that helped you find your keys, you've now come up with literally an infinite amount of work to account for that explanation. Yeah. And I'll just say one other thing. Um, I've always tended towards being a decent critical thinker, but it really is the moment to the audience, to each of you listening and watching Spencer Wright is the guy who helped me finally solidify <clears throat> my, my understanding of how these kinds of arguments should work between critics and apologists. And it's the moment, Spencer, that you started helping me understand this kind of thinking that um, I really solidified my ability um, to pick apart apologetic arguments and to no longer accept the second best best answer Regardless, most of the time, the second best answer is deeply far away from the first one. But even in instances where it feels somewhat close, the ability to still discard that in order to be a rational thinker. So I just want to say thank you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so glad that we uh, were able to connect and have, have these kind of discussions. This is so yeah. much fun. Cool. Okay, so uh, essentially we're just kind of just breaking down the rules with these last three slides. So abductive reasoning is essentially rule out the less exotic theories before assuming a more exotic theory. And we have a more mathematical way of thinking about that. We just wanna make sure that the amount of work that we're describing to get to get to that observation is less than some other one. Or in other words, the same sort of thing, rule out what can be observed before assuming out something, you know, rule out the cat that's there before jumping to the cat that's not there. Perfect. Uh, and this was kind of just going back to the to the, the the baby and the mom theory, just treat indis indistinguishable observations as having the same cause. So so we know that Joseph had a uh, Masonic connection, but we don't know that he necessarily used that connection, right? We don't know what's going on inside of Joseph's brain, but we know that inside of Joseph's brain is a Masonic uh, compass and square. And yeah. so it's now indistinguishable from the the source of his of of his compass and square. And so, rather than trying to assume some other compass and square made it into his brain from China, let's just treat the indistinguishable observation as having the same cause. Yes. And then, lastly, this kind of goes back to to the what we were talking about before about the the fastest runner in Africa. There might be a fastest runner in Africa. God might be the cause of the observations, but if you have to assume those those things as true on the observation side in order to get to your theory, then you are you're you're basically cheating. There's there's a the, you you put you put two two uh, variables on the opposite sides of the equation. They basically just cancel each other out. 
Yeah. And it is interesting. I mean, I've, I've had these conversations numerous times. You know, I've talked to Mike Ash about the number of people who are claimed to have died on the Hill Cumorah during battle, for instance. And what Mike does is he says, uh, well, maybe the maybe the Nephites and the Lamanites are, are embellishing their numbers, right? Well, there's no evidence that they're embellishing their numbers other than that's what he needs to add to the equation in order for us to now still believe the Book of Mormon is a ancient historical text. And what you're saying is like, start to notice when the apologist is adding conjecture and allowances into an argument or when they are saying, well, maybe, like maybe this happened or maybe that happened. You ought to always hold them accountable to dealing with the data as it is and pointing them always to the most reasonable, rational conclusion that requires the least amount of allowances and conjecture. Yeah, the theories, I'm now pointing the correct direction to match the slide. The theories go on the theory side and the observations go on the observation side. And so if you're putting if you're putting a theory over on the observation side, you are cheating. It's yeah. it, it, it works. It's fine. Like you, we can we can just like the the baby and the mom. It's like I just made up that entire thing, right? It's like there there is no observation of a baby seeing its mom. Um, I just made that up. But the point is, is that when we're working with trying to say what is the most rational conclusion to a, a set of observations, we have to work with that set of observations, not start with putting some additional theory over on the the observation side and then come and then conveniently coming up with a theory that accounts for that. And manner. notice right here, here's a great example, right? Camille comes in and says, or maybe there's more than one Hill Camorra and we yeah, just haven't yeah. found it yet. Yeah, Again, so you're adding something over to the other side of the equation. Yeah. Put, put that over, put that theory on the observation side and it works. It's great. Yeah. It's amazing. Look at that. I love it. I don't know if she was being serious or not, but she certainly helped us see how that works. Yeah. Yeah, All so right, we gotta um, we gotta watch out for those watch out for those what ifs to to uh, to account for the data. And so as we're going through the the data, we can kind of see how you know how a, an apologist might use that same sort of reasoning to arrive at their conclusion. But we have to start with the data, and not with the what if data. Yeah, and this will be the to me. I mean it when when people are engaging defenders of the church, their argument the only way their arguments work is by playing games with how this should work. And if you can start to understand this process and start to spot it in a conversation, you'll just be much more effective at holding the defender of the faith accountable to what they're saying and not allowing anything other than the most rational answer to, to hold weight and to be put across as if it's legit, you know? Um, so this is a great tool for people. Anything else here? Can I drop oh, this off? I was just, yeah, I was just going to say one other thing that, so Please. I've been having discussions recently where the observation has been, well, I had a spiritual feeling. Yeah. And then that spiritual feeling helps prove that the Holy Spirit was talking to my spirit. But yeah. what they're starting, they're, st they're starting with a what if kind of smuggled in there, which is spiritual feeling. Now, what they're what they're observing is a feeling and they're theorizing that it's a spiritual feeling. So what they're actually doing is smuggling part of the theory over to the observation side and and then reaching their conclusion that way. And so what we again, we're just it's really difficult to 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 separate people. People have a really hard time separating observation from theory. They start with observation, but they kind of start with uh, theoretical observation. It's just, it's too easy. It's just, it's, we, 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 we tend to do this frequently.
Yeah. And so there's a lot, a lot of ways to do this, a lot of ways to kind of cheat the equation so you can get to the answer that you want. T.O. seems to be doing this too, right? Joseph's texts are apocalyptic genre, not historical, and should be read accordingly. Uh, belief systems obfuscate what it means to worship. So he's creating a whole other form of like how it could be true. Yeah. And, but what he's doing is he's moving his own way of making the church work over to the other side of the argument. Yeah, and if and if Joseph Smith had said, if the, if you can find me an observation of Joseph Smith having written down saying, "Look, I don't mean any of this stuff literally. I just mean it figuratively. I just mean right. it." There is no, there's no literal God. There's a metaphorical God. There is no, you know, the 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 Book of Abraham. I I'm not literally translating. I'm just metaphorically translating it. If he said that, if that was an observation, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Yeah. It's because yeah. that observation doesn't exist. That's the problem. Yeah. And so we're Love making it. up an observation to make it all make sense. Yeah. Love it. Nice shirt, by the way. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm going to drop this off. Is that okay? Yep. Yep. I think we're good with this. All right. So now let's bring this up and um, let's go here to the two minute and 25 second oh, mark. Just as I, as I saw his face, I just wanted to say the, 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 in, in, as we're going through this, I, I love his enthusiasm, the way that he is so excited about talking about all this stuff. And I would have been exactly the same way in exactly the same position. I, you know, I, 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 even right now, I still love talking about this stuff, but yeah. uh, enthusiasm doesn't, doesn't, you know, cut, cut the cheese. Yeah. This Wait, was, cut the cheese. well, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. That can be used more than one way, but yeah. Um, this is exactly the way I used to think. This is exactly how the church was true. It was amazing that it was true. It makes so many connections to the ancient world. There's, there, you know, there's chiasmus. There's, you know, all these things that we can throw out that make Mormonism true. And then the reality is if we take each one of those, hold them accountable to the same rules we use in all the rest of the arguments, because sometimes there's different sets of rules for different issues. But when we hold the rules being consistent, and then we dive into these kinds of things, um, suddenly, if you're willing to be a critical thinker, almost all of this stuff starts to fall apart. So the very first slide I wanted to throw in, and by the way, we're getting a little echo over yours. Do you happen to have like earbuds or anything you can throw in? Uh, if you don't, I, no biggie. We'll deal yeah, with unfortunately, it. Yeah, I, I have some, but they're dead. So. Okay, no biggie. Um, all right. So the first slide here I wanted to talk about is he's making a point that there are these common themes that are found anciently as well as in the modern moment uh, in Mormonism. And so he's talking about purification, anointing, creation, garden. Uh, he's talking about travel. And I assume by travel, it's that the person on a faith journey is transitioning, is moving along in a path. They are uh, they start off in this space, and the goal that God wants them to do is to grow and progress and to travel the, the gospel path, for instance, the covenant path, and to arrive at exaltation or heaven or salvation. Um, what I'll just simply say here is that these are common themes throughout all religions for a reason. This is how humans make sense of the world. We humans don't need explanations for the things we know only the things we don't know and the things that humans have never known is how the world got created and uh, where did we come from and why are we here and where are we going and so every religion comes in essentially trying to answer these questions and so hence they're always going to have a path for initiates 
to move to salvation. They are always going to have uh, uh, ways in which we have rituals and rites that help us to get into the right headspace to be more spiritual. And so um, having a creation or a garden is a common theme um, because we all recognize that even in the midst of being in a modern society with buildings and technology, that at one point our ancestors didn't have any of that. And we were just huddled around a fire singing and dancing. And so this idea of creation, um, the idea of purification, again, you're, something's wrong with you and this religion's going to take you and help you become something bigger than you are. These are common themes in almost all religions. And to simply say like Joseph Smith has it and the ancient world has it. So he nailed it. It would ignore the fact that if you went into like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, which we were just looking up art before we started the show, there's, they have lots of art of the, what it's going to be like in heaven with all the animals sitting around as a lion sitting next to the lamb, sitting next to a child, next to the parent. They have lots of artwork about the creation. So if, Joseph Smith and Mormonism got it right, then we would also have to acknowledge that other faiths got it right too, when really the easiest explanation is that these are just common themes and and they're found everywhere. And so why wouldn't Mormonism have these themes too? Yeah, and I was just gonna add that uh, again, there, there are certain elements here that don't exist in masonry. Like the masons don't use the creation story for their travel story, right? It's like, this, this is, it's, it's very much the hero's journey. This, the, you know, all, all of the, what's going on here is kind of a hero's journey sort of feel. There is a hero's journey sort of concept going on in masonry. Uh, but if you were to take the elements that exist in masonry and the elements that exist in the book of Genesis, you essentially have what's going on in the temple. It's like most everything can be taken care of with here. And the idea of purification, I, and I just wanted to say this, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more when we get into the, the, the Asian stuff, but this very idea of purification, it's like, well, so ultimately what the, what's happening with the purification is that Joseph Smith is saying, you know, your bless your eyes so that they can see and your ears so they can hear. You know, the, the, that's that's the most uh, simple uh, symbol you can possibly come up with for an ear. Right. It's like if anyone is going to say what it, what could an ear be symbolic for? It's to hear. <laughs> Like that's that there you you can't get more fundamental, more basic than that. And so for anyone to use an ear symbol, the most likely thing they're going to use the ear symbol for is to hear. Yeah. And while some of these themes may not be present in masonry, we ought to acknowledge that many of these themes are present in the Bible. They're present in other things that Joseph Smith had access to, including the sermons of ministers in his neighborhood. Um we don't have to jump to an ancient connection if the connection is three blocks down the street or sitting on a bookshelf in his home. Yeah, rule, rule out the non-exotic stuff first, then go to the exotic stuff. Yeah, perfect. Let me pull up the next one. This will be at 348. All right, so here what he's, uh, what he's essentially saying is that um, that middle paragraph, for instance, we know of a number of liturgical contexts in which the creation drama was acted out as a teaching device. Um, I, I simply would want to note, like he's, he's, he's acknowledging, although he doesn't really see it as fitting as art. Let me say it differently. He's actually arguing on my behalf, but he doesn't know it. The reality is, again, it's a common theme. Yes, there's a number of liturgical contexts uh, across various faiths 
where the creation drama is acted out as a teaching device. Um, this idea of from antiquity, certain stories have been retold, the creation and the fall. By the way, long before Christianity and long before Judaism, there are a host of other religions who tackle these same kinds of ideas of having some sort of flood, of having towers, of having messiahs. So just because you find an ancient connection, the first thing that seems most rational is that there are a way of in which humans approach the religious or the spiritual, and they tend to be common themes. Uh, any thoughts on this slide? Yeah, and I, I just wanted to point out as well that the, the creator of this video is kind of doing our work for us in a lot of ways. Anytime you see a reference in the Bible, that's probably yeah. the most likely source of where Joseph Smith got it too, right? Yeah. And so when we when we see that in the Bible, it's like we we know that anciently the the temple was set up in such a way that it had a holy of holies, and then Joseph has his own holy of holies in in the, the at least the Salt Lake Temple, and yeah. so uh, so once again, it's like okay, well, is it is it most likely that 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 idea for a holy of holies came from some revelatory process that we have to come up with? Now we have to talk about like magical work in order to get Joseph Smith to to have holy of holies. Or did he just get the idea from the Bible that talks about a temple that has a holy of holies or, you know, a, 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 a wash basin that has 12 cows or whatever. It's like it probably just came from the fact that he read the Bible. And so uh, oh, and one other thing that I was going to talk about was so like in uh, in Shinto, the, the the Shinto shrine is divided up into three different sections, and they they usually have a, a, a third section which is called the Hongden, which is basically their holy of holies. And so again, it's like we can kind of see that this is just a very common motif, this concept of having a, a, a sacred building and having a sacred, sacred building that's attached to the sacred building that's the most sacred building where we hold the sacred relics or whatever the case might be. Uh, but probably Joseph Smith didn't get his ideas from Japan, right? He probably just, it's probably just... This is just a very common motif of having, I want to have a, a sacred place and then I'm going to have a more sacred place to put my most sacred things. And so these, these ideas, you know, it's possible, again, possible, everything's possible, right? Uh, maybe there's a connection between Japan and, and ancient Israel, but probably it's just a common, it's like ears being able to hear, right? It's just like, it's just a common feeling. People want to have a sacred place and they create a holy of holies, a most sacred place to, yeah. in their holy buildings. And it also recognizing that in Joseph Smith, regardless of whether you believe he's the uh, vessel by which the Book of Mormon came through because it's a revelatory process, or whether Joseph Smith is enacting some sort of deception and creating the Book of Mormon on his own and attributing some sort of provenance that isn't real. The reality is that the Book of Mormon itself tells us that the Nephites built their temple after the manner of Solomon. And hence, when Joseph does build a temple, it seems very natural that he's going to go back and try to figure out what parts of the Temple of Solomon are important to put into temples. Yeah. Okay. Next one is 420. And uh, so in this one, um, yeah, let's see here, the holy place, which we've already kind of mentioned, several more rooms to accommodate. So he's basically making this idea that this room equals this room. Like Solomon's temple has these six rooms and here's their comparative equal over on the other side in modern LDS temples. 
And the reality is that you're really having to use a lot of creativity here because these rooms are very different. They're, they don't contain the same rituals. They don't contain the same rites. Um, the way in which these folks did religion was entirely different than the way Mormons do religion. And, and so you're having to go like A equals B when in reality they just don't. And I think any mind, when you're thinking there's a connection, I think it's often easy to try to find some little thing like, oh, this is the outward room. So this is similar to that outward room. And this is where initiates have to enter in. Well, that's the reality. All initiates have to enter into any room from the front and come in. And, you know, so uh, it feels as though as I read this, I simply, in my modern perspective outside the church, I can no longer see the Temple of Solomon and make connections to what we do. They are completely different practices and ordinances. Even though Joseph Smith had it as a template, he still created something extremely different. Yeah, I, I was just watching uh, Willow a couple of days ago and thinking about Willow is pretty much Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's not exactly the same, right? It's there, there's enough of a distinction that you can say it's a different movie, but fundamentally, it's you got you got elves and fairies and 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 little little people and and uh, you know sword and sorcery and everything like that. It's probably you know the the, the creators of Willow have read the Lord of the Rings at some point and just kind of came up with their own version of that. It doesn't take ma a magical solution to explain where Willow came from. Right. It's like we have we have a source available there that that's that's probably what they came. They probably used a lot of the elements from the Lord of the Rings to come up with Willow. And yeah. and kind of and, and I was just thinking also too, once again, he seems to be kind of doing our work for us here where he says this lack of a one-to-one -one correlation. It's like he's trying to make it to say, look how look how this is obviously this, you know must the only way to account for this is revelation the only way to account for this is joseph smith was just he had some magical power and it's like no he had the bible he had masonry he had his imagination all, all those three things together can easily account for whatever similarities exist between willow and lord of the rings or between yeah. the mormon temple and the ancient temple he's admitting they have distinctly different functions that's pick up on that. And then also notice too, Joseph Campbell does all this work about the hero's journey. And what we learned from Joseph Campbell is that there are common themes that run through our mind, but they seem to be somewhat subconscious. We're not really aware of them in our day-to-day -day life, but that when we create stories, we do implement common themes. And I think some of these play out in this religious world as well. Okay. Um, next one is 515. And so here, same thing, you know, Temple of Solomon, Aaronic Priesthood, Salt Lake Temple, Melchizedek Priesthood. So he's saying they they are connected. Let me tell you how they're connected. Uh, one man can enter, any worthy member can enter. High priest only enters room representing presence of God. All worthy members may enter room. Only male descendants of Levi, men and women of all Israel officiate. So he's acknowledging on the front end that these are completely different than each other. But he also wants to say, like, at every level, like, this level has something here that's shared. And, and he's, so to, to some degree, he's right. How many people can enter is a common theme, but anytime we have a building, that theme is going to be present. It's not realistic um, 
for us to go like, oh, how many people can enter? That's fascinating. Like, how did they come up with that? Well, the reality is there's a building and people have to enter. Um, and so at each point, uh, you could find a common theme between the two things, proxy animals offered for sins, proxy work for the dead. But those are two very different things. I'm going to kill a live animal on behalf of uh, the sins of people. And then I'm going to do work for people who have passed on so that they can get to heaven. They're, they're just very different things. Anyway, not, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that one either, but your thoughts there? Uh, I, essentially the same thing we were just talking about, that it's like, yeah, of course, as, if you're already acknowledging there are differences here, then you're doing our work for us. Yeah. yeah. Um, on this slide, uh, let's see here. This is the five, 547, 549. Um, white vestments, priesthood, so some sort of, of and again, Joseph has priesthood in his vocabulary. Uh, Joseph has vestments in his vocabulary. Uh, crowns, he has in his, uh, that in his vocabulary. You've got the robe, uh, the miter, again, the apron. He is doing masonry at the very time he's coming up with this. Uh, he also, I'm sure, and I'm only saying that because it's in this, you know, as he's using Adam Clark's commentary at some point, uh, not necessarily this early, but as he's using uh, Adam Clark's commentary at some point, actually it would be this early, um, and other things that are in his awareness about how the Old Testament operated or how the uh, Jewish priest would have operated, he would have understood to some degree anointing with oil. He would have understood that there are washings and cleansing, cleansings and purifications. He would have understood that there was aprons and other uh, sorts of clothing that went into this. So there are multiple sources that are available to him contemporary that we don't need to go into any sort of magic revelation in his head from some outside source to get there. Thoughts from you? Yeah, and, and I, I I wonder if, and I, I can't quite remember what his point was with this video, but I did notice that he was saying, look at this second century BC document that talks about these things that match what Joseph Smith said. And yeah. presumably with the idea that Joseph, there's no way Joseph Smith would have had access to the second century BC document that's talking about the priestly ordination of Levi. But what he's referencing in the document are the same exact things that are available in the Bible. Yeah. So the idea of a mitre and apron and anointed with holy oil and everything. It's like uh, Sam Samuel went to anoint uh, King King David with holy oil inside of a ram's horn. And so that's that's in the Bible. It's like we don't we don't have to go outside of the Bible to figure out where did Joseph Smith or where could have Joseph Smith come up with the idea of having oil in a ram's horn. It's, yeah. it's not necessary. We, it's in the Bible. It's already there. Um, he also has in his uh, in his view other religious systems around him. Um, there are other religious systems that have uh, highly decorated uh, vestments and garbs that they're wearing. So again, anytime it comes to clothing, too, is is it in masonry? Yes. Is it visible in other religious systems with whoever is officiating ordinances or officiating services in those faiths? Yeah, some of that's present, uh, Catholic Church being one example. Um, it, it, again, you're looking for the, what, he, where he could get it that would require the least amount of allowances and conjecture. And as you're pointing out, it's right there in front of him. Okay. Yeah. So we have this, we have this exotic source here of this second century BC document and then, but jumping over the less exotic source. Yeah. 
Here's Cyril's lecture again. This is at 612. Um, as soon as you have entered, you put off your tunic. And this was an image of putting off the old man with his deeds. Having stripped yourselves, you were naked. In this also imitating Christ, who was stripped naked on the cross. For truly you bore the likeness of firstborn Adam, who was naked in the garden and was not ashamed. Um, but one thing that might help too, by the way, Spencer, is if you mute it when I'm talking, but you'll just have to remember to unmute it all the time. Sorry. Sorry. All right. So um, in this one here, 612, finding a, uh, a vague similarity in a vague document that mentions initiate, I'm sorry, imitating Adam and Christ uh, and being not necessarily naked, but naked, but also um, taking off like whatever your outside clothes are in order to put on whatever you do inside to do the ordinances and things. Um, again, I, I'm just going to note that there are lots of religious traditions where you change clothes, where you let your uh, secular clothing uh, that comes off and you put on some sort of religious clothing. Um, there is lots of ideas behind um, Christ uh, is the mediator to the father and the mediator between us and him and that he symbolizes us in that um, approaching God. And so there are lots of these common themes found within Christianity. Um, we don't necessarily have to go like, oh, there's Cyril's lecture and Joseph and, and Cyril are getting their information from the same source. Any thoughts here on this one? Um, only, only that. So I have studied Aikido for a long time, and part of the the process of Aikido it was it was interesting to me when I saw my sensei, my teacher, uh, the first time outside of the of the dojo, right outside of the, the training area, where he had basically just gone and switched out of his Aikido clothes and put on you know jeans and a t shirt, whatever. And it was kind of weird seeing him the first time wearing just regular clothes. Um, but the, the point being the kind of the connection here is that when we're in that kind of sacred space, and this isn't even a religious setting, right? This is talking about a martial arts setting in that, in that sacred space, the dojo, uh, essentially we're, we're removing our normal clothes and donning, you know, special, almost ceremonial clothes for that process. And so it's just... The, you, you go to a graduation and it's like you're you're removing your regular clothes and donning a robe and then might you know whatever the might mortarboard hat and everything like that we, we we love the idea of pomp and ceremony and so so this this concept that people put on different clothes to go through a ceremony is not there's nothing unique about the ancient uh, Jewish temple or the Mormon temple, or, you know, just like what you said, the, in, in the, the Catholic mass, the, the, the priest might just be wearing some regular clothes on, on some other day, but when he's there at mass, he's wearing special clothes set apart just for that purpose. And so, and so it wasn't like Joseph Smith had to, had to receive revelation to come up with this concept of wearing special clothes when you go to the temple. Right, right. All right, six twenty-eight. By the way, did the, did the sound did the sound go away? I had my, the kind of the fan running on my computer. I wonder if that was the. Oh, I don't hear anything. Still... Yeah, I don't hear anything yet. So okay, oh, that, that, that may have been that may that may have been the problem. I still hear it a little bit. Oh, oh, you do hear it. Okay. Yeah, it, it's it's I'm being heard over your speakers, um, I believe, and I you know okay. we have the echo thing turned off on your settings, but that's not that's not fixing it. So okay. okay, all right, I'll I'll keep muting while you're talking. No biggie. All right, so on this one, um, then you were anointed with exercised oil from the very hairs of your head to your feet, 
your first anointed to the forehead. It talks about olive oil. Again, let's just note here, 2 Corinthians 3.18, he's got a New Testament source for this. Um, notice the next one. Then on your ears, quick to hear. Then on your nostrils, notice again. 50 verse 4, 2 Corinthians 2.15, afterwards your breast. Philippians 4.13, uh, um, you don't need an ancient document, Cyril's lecture, 19 through 22, when Joseph Smith could take this right from the scriptures. Um, I also want to note something as well. Let's see. So there's a different way to kind of think about this. First, acknowledge that the apologists are sincere here. When we come to the data with a bias, it is easiest for us to fit the data to our pre-existing belief. In other words, work backwards. Wedding feast in the Book of Mormon, ancient wheat. Yeah, there's some vague kind that somehow is, you know, in the Americas. Uh, we did find some horse bones in that tar pit in California. So that explains everything. Um, NHM is in the right place at the right time. And so NHM must mean Nahum and it must be the same spot. And then Chiasmus is the one that I thought of as a direct example. For years and years, decades and decades, I think it was Jack Welch who discovered Chiasmus. And the Book of Mormon has it and some ancient uh, uh, religious text within the Judaism Christian culture have it. Hence, this is an ancient way of writing and it's only found here and hence it must be from God. And so the Book of Mormon is true. In recent years, we have just completely left Chiasmus by the side of the road. Even in some of the books that Joseph Smith is using very similar language in the Book of Mormon from, uh, such as the late war or the first book of Napoleon, those books contain chiasms. Uh, Radio Free Mormon and I did a Mormonism live. I can't remember the document, but it was uh, about a month or two ago. And we showed in uh, in a document uh, contemporary to Joseph Smith that had similar language to the book of Mormon. It was this long, long chiasm that was similar to the one that we always point out in the book of Mormon, which is Alma chapter 36. And, so in the modern moment, we go like chiasmus seems to be everywhere when we look for it. Some of them seem to be very significant, and lots of these are found in sources contemporary to Joseph Smith. Hence, if other authors have the ability to create chiasms in a document that has no attribution from God or dealing with religion, then um, we don't have to accept that Joseph Smith strangely gets his chiasm from some other source. It's just the human way that we often uh, write down words, even though it's subconscious, most likely, uh, at least in most situations, um, it seems to find itself into our writing and it's just the way we humans do things. Um, and so I wanted to say here, um, Critical thinking requires us to open up to a perspective outside of the lens that we were given. So it's easy to go like, oh, the initiatory ordinance seems to have some ancient connection. Hence, Joseph must have been told by God to connect those dots. When in reality, I'm going to put up on the screen here, ritual purification is found everywhere. Baha, Buddhism, Christianity, I might have said that wrong, the first one, Hinduism, the indigenous American religions. Again, the apologist might go, look, it's in the Lamanite culture. Of course, Joseph Smith's hitting on a truth. And the reality is it's in Islam, Judaism, the Kalash people, the uh, some Mandaism, 
Western esotericism. Um, so, and then there's anointing. So I'll put this one out. Uh, anointing, uh, the idea of doing that. It's in Egypt, it's in India, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Roman Catholicism, of course, those, Orthodoxy, Greek Catholicism, Protestantism, Latter-day Saints, it's in royalty. So it's just in these cultures it isn't necessary for us to go that all of these folks are getting it from divine sources. The most rational, logical approach is that these are just common themes found throughout the world within religion. Uh, any thoughts from you there? Yeah, and just it, kind of going back to this idea, because it's talking about the ears, it's like to say that you've made this logical leap that the, a, a symbolism of ears is the ability to hear. It's the most logic. It's the most. It's the simplest thing that you can possibly think of. What is a, what is an ear a good symbol for? And it's the same kind of concept to say what is a symbol for water. Well, you know what is water a good symbol for? Like the the very idea that everyone has these these baptisms and ablutions and, and ritual cleansing and everything, and they use water as the symbol. It's like, well, that's just like ears being able to hear. It's like the fun, most fundamental thing we do with water, besides drinking it, is is cleansing with it. And so, so the very idea that we would use water not just to literally cleanse ourselves, but to spiritually cleanse ourselves is the most common, you know, one of the most common motifs the world over. The idea that Joseph Smith also used the same symbol that is just so completely common the world over uh, doesn't tie him back to, to ancient Judaism. It just essentially just ties him to the, the, the most common way of looking at the symbol of water. Yeah. Um, he has it in his own, again, we know what's in his head, not that we know how he thinks, but we know what information he has. He knows that Jesus washed feet. He knows that Old, temp Old Testament temple rituals and New Testament temple rituals uh, involve oil. He knows that it's olive oil because the scriptures say so. Um, there's just so many points in this conversation where he's pointing, the guy in the video here is pointing at an ancient document, but in reality, those same concepts are in Joseph's milieu. Hence, we don't really have to go to some ancient way of him knowing. Um, and so there's that. Um, a person in the 1800s likely would have been much more grounded in their senses, not distracted by the technology that we, that we are. Uh, they might connect with the senses uh, very naturally, especially in light of all the other religions and they're naturally connecting with the senses. You know, we're always got our, our faces buried in our phones and playing on our computers and watching Netflix. These guys were close to the earth. These guys were every day out working with their hands and doing things in ways that they were much more aware of the natural world around them than we are. It becomes also very natural that they would connect with their senses prior to us having all this technology. They would connect with their senses maybe a little better than we do going all the way back. Um, you've got a bunch here written. Anything else you want to talk about? I did want to throw one more thing out. Um, this book here, the M-A-G-U-S, I, I pronounce it Magus or Magus. I'm not sure how it's said. Um, we know from D. Michael Quinn that Joseph Smith had access to this material. This is a book written in the early 1800s. It dealt with how Joseph would have done his folk magic, his treasure digging, his scrying, magic circles, all that stuff's in here. Other things that are in here, uh, creation in the fall, consecration with water and oil. Again, there are concepts that he implemented into the LDS religion that at least have some crossover. Not that he got it from here, 
but it becomes much more rational that he got it from here than a magic being in the sky said something to him. And so we always have to be considering what are all the available sources, Adam Clark's commentary, the book of Josephus, the book of Jasher, uh, the Magus. I mean, there's just all kinds of things. Um, and I, th I hope someday maybe somebody will make a complete list of everything we know he had access to. And, and then maybe a list of things he likely had access to. We ought to start there when we're trying to figure out where he got his concepts from. For instance, the three degrees of glory. Um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. Swedenberg, right? And Swedenberg talks about the three degrees of glory. Uh, the word of wisdom. There are many things at the time that talked about temperance in the very things that Joseph urged temperance in within the word of wisdom. We don't have to go to a magic being in the sky when the solution again is three blocks down the street or sitting on a bookshelf in his home. Any thoughts there? Uh, I, I think we've, we're, we're kind of talking about the same sort of thing with the, yep. the purification and whatnot. And so I think we've, we've basically covered it. Yeah. All right. Let me move into 643. And I was just going to look at how we're doing time-wise. We've got about an hour to go. Um, praying with the uplifted hands. Again, I'll, I don't I don't think anything has to be said here. Look at what he gives as examples. They are Old Testament examples. Again, Joseph already tells you in the Book of Mormon that he's trying to connect to the Temple of Solomon, that there are things there that need to be carried forward into the modern moment of the Restoration. So why do we need to go anywhere further than the Old Testament itself? Any thoughts there? Uh, just, I, I had found a quote uh, that somebody was talking about uh, the part of the ceremony that happens in at least some of the, the versions of masonry, uh, where it says, because the higher trinity of man's being must be present before soul union can take place, the omnific, omnific royal arch word can only be given in groups of three, which again, we're going to talk about three in a minute here too, but it says their right hands are then raised above their heads, or they give a low breath of the word, uh, Jabulun, Jehovah God. So basically they're they're raising their hands as part of the the, the, the ceremony, the, the process here as well so in, in masonry. Yeah. And I was just going to redirect here. Was that the, the hidden hand of the men of Maybe, maybe this so. was the biblio. I was going to just put this up. I have this yeah. link here. I didn't know if this was you or me that put this on. Yeah, I think I pasted that in. Born again, wine from a human skull. Like there's just, again, every religion has its ordinances and there's going to be overlap in certain things and there's going to be distinct differences. And once you accept that, the similarities aren't as, they don't stand out as much as unique. Um, lost name of God. Anyway, um, all right. So there's that. Let's go yeah. to the next time. Which, which also kind of ties. We'll we'll talk about this in uh, in another section. But there's another thing that kind of ties in here too, which is kind of the 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 keywords, the passwords, and what the case may be. Yeah. Let's go to seven twenty eight. All right, perfect. This one here, in Christian art, the garment and robe were marked with signs at right angles, the gamma or the square. The marks had some religious significance or symbolic force. Um, this is sixth century. Again, it doesn't seem like we know what the interpretation is, and he doesn't seem to know that at least. What he's saying is that, look, there's a right angle. That has to mean something. And as I was pointing out, we find this in Mormonism where this kind of happened. I was going to pull a couple of images up. Um, oop, let's get rid of that one. I wonder. 
I'll have to open it back up. Let's try right here. Get rid of that. Okay, so this is the facsimile with Min, the Egyptian god, sitting on some sort of uh, seat. And I was just talking to my friend Chris Bloxham the other day, and we were talking about this because two of the last three Mormonism Live episodes dealt with the Book of Abraham. And uh, my buddy Chris goes, yeah, man, when I was on my mission, I used to tell all the other missionaries, I mean, look at this is Heavenly Father upon his throne. That was the Mormon interpretation of this facsimile, this image that's circled. Notice that Heavenly Father has his arm up to the square and he has his hand out in front of him in a cupping shape, right? Like he's holding his hand out. This is the temple thing, guys. And so he saw some sort of image that his brain told him is connected to what we do in Mormonism. And then I noticed too, notice that hand that's raised, notice that is both a compass and a square. Or maybe you said that. Did you say that yesterday? So it's it's actually not a uh, compass. However, I can totally see how Joseph Smith could have seen that and thought he saw a compass for yeah. for sure. Yes, it's actually it's actually a flail like to to be uh, slaves with or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, which is know, not like, anything related. Not, yeah, they're, they're they're not actually connected. Yeah, he, no, he no. he's actually into some some kinky stuff. I'm not kink shaming here, but he's yeah. that, that's that's not a hand in front. That's a penis in front, yes. and he, he likes to use his whip on on slaves. So right. So the, so the that's that's what's actually happening in that in that picture. Yeah, the item in front is a penis. He's got a weapon in his other hand that he's going to be slaves with. And what, what a Mormon sees is a hand raised to the square. He sees a compass in a square in that. And then he sees the hand out front, which is part of this temple sign that people do. And so we have to be very careful when we're looking at things that look like there's a connection that we open ourselves up to the reality of whether there really is a connection or not. Uh, I'll get rid of that one. And then another one I want to show you, just this is, oh, you got your picture there. Let's uh, let's open up downloads. Where are you hiding? Give me a second. All right. So this one here. So this is a Naples relief. When I was struggling in the middle of my faith crisis, I started to reach out on discussion boards and try to work things out. And I was starting to ask about the connection between masonry and the temple. I, I, I'd always learned that apologetic argument that it went back to the temple of Solomon. And then I knew that that didn't quite hold up. So this guy comes along and goes, look, Bill, here's an angel who's putting two people's heads together. Um, they are doing some kind of handshake. They're sharing some sort of information. They have some sort of stance against each other. Obviously, this is uh, an ancient uh, concept. And this is, this is an, a Naples relief. I think it's a 12th century item. Um, but the reality is we don't know what is going on there per se. And anytime we go, definitely this equals that without really knowing what this is on the screen, we need to just slow down and go like, maybe, maybe not. Let's not insinuate that it is. Now, this one I don't have an answer for. I don't know exactly what's going on here. Um, but to notice, again, there are common themes out there. And I, th I always thought this was cool. This was a testimony increaser for years for me. Um, and today I go like, who knows what exactly is going on there and what religion 
what religious practice is happening, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that this person's getting ready to go through the veil into the celestial room. Anything on that one? Um, so I just wanted to actually jump back to the the gamma symbol for just a second. Please. So, so this I need to kind of jump back to sort of my childhood, which was uh, I grew up in kind of a apocalyptic kind of house that we were always kind of worried the world was going to end and we're going to have to rebuild civilization from scratch, sort of thing. And so, so one of these thoughts that I always kind of went through my brain was, okay, how do you rebuild civilization? How do you how do you start over from the very beginning if you have not nothing no technology nothing and one of the very <clears throat> one of the very first things that that I thought was well you can't even start building a house until you have the tools to build a house right and so like this concept of a compass and square are really actually foundational to how to make everything else in civilization, uh, or at least, you know, the construction, the, the, the buildings and whatnot. So this idea that like civilizations came upon the idea of a square, of a, of a here's how to actually make a tool. You can bisect a line, you know, ge using geometry, you can bisect a line without having a square and create a square. You can create a square from scratch kind of thing. And so this idea that like these civilizations uh, were excited about the idea of a square or the, the, you know, this is one of the reasons why Masons are so big on the squares in the compass is because they are such foundational tools. China, just like we, we, that very first uh, image that we started out with, with Nuan Fuxi, it's like, obviously that was a big deal in China that they had figured out how to create the tools that they can now know that we have a perfect right angle uh, and, and, and we can draw a perfect circle, that the, we can have these tools. It's likely that the, that these these guys are also very excited about the idea that they have this tool, and and that even even what's also interesting is, uh, in the West they use the idea of a square to mean kind of the Earth, that the Earth was sort of you know a, a flat square with four corners, and that the the sky was kind of a dome, a circular dome, and so they use this concept of saying the the square kind of represented the earth male principle and the sky represented the the circular female principle well that's exactly what they meant in uh in china as well how but but the point again it's like that's not a that's not a, a humongous leap to jump from the idea of a square to the idea of a square earth that's if you don't know how, how the earth is you know what the earth actually is it kind of just looks like a map. It looks like a square. And if you don't know what the sky is, it kind of just looks like a dome. And so it's it's not that hard of a leap to jump from uh, here are the, the the tools, the foundation of society, uh, the compass and the square, and one represents the earth and one represents the heavens, right? And so, so they're, they're just very common motifs. However, they're really, really common. And in fact, there's another group who also uses this gamma, this, this right angle symbol, and that would be the Nazis. That, that's actually what the, the swastika is. It's actually four gamma symbols put together. In fact, they call it the tetragammaton. And so, uh, so interestingly, there's another group that uses the gamma symbol, but he doesn't want to he doesn't want to connect to those guys, right? He doesn't want to say that Hitler had uh, uh, revelation. Yeah, he doesn't use, put that slide up, right? You use the gamma as his yeah. symbol, right? It's just it's just a really, really common motif that's all over because it's one of the foundational symbols of of civilization. That's that's what we have going here. And again, so it, that, doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter anyway because it's in masonry. And yeah, he's, exactly. Right. Like, so where did, the where did easiest, Joseph get it? Yeah. 
the easiest connection to make is he got it from masonry. We don't have to go finding the Nazis or uh, the Chinese or uh, this image here on the screen. Yeah. And so the, the point that I would just make with this is that may very well be a square. They, they may be very well be drawing a, 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 a square symbol and using the square symbol for religious purposes. But so does everybody else, because it's essentially the foundation of society, the idea yeah. of the square. Perfect. Uh, we already talked about this one here. Uh, again, just it's a common theme that's going to be available into all that stuff. So let's go to 819. Uh, clothing rituals, Alonzo Gaskill, changing clothes, vestments, aprons, head coverings, robes, sashes, footwear, undergarments. Again, these are common things found throughout various religions all across the world, uh, across time and space. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, uh, it assuredly doesn't necessitate that we have to have an ancient connection. It's much more reasonable to go. These are just common themes, anciently modern, found throughout religion across time and space. Anything on that one you want to add? Just the, we've, we've talked about it, but just it, they're all in the Bible. Every, every, everything there is in the Old Testament. So. Okay, 924. All right, let's, oh, that's not going to be right. I'm wondering what timestamp that is. There was something about sacred knots. Is this is this a spot maybe where he's talking or is there a slide that went with this, Spencer? Oh, sorry. You know, I, I think I just added this in just to kind of point out that there, again, this idea of he, he's talking about the idea of the knot that that you tie a little string from your hat onto your to your robe. And they're oh. making that connection, essentially. And so um, this idea of a knot, he's just using again, once again, the knot. Now, the knot is a very, very prevalent symbol in Egyptian uh mythology and whatnot. It's like I, Isis has a very famous knot and even like the, the idea of the cartouche, the circle that goes around, uh, you know, the Pharaoh's name is, uh, is also actually a knot. And the idea of a knot, once again, if you think about what's the most common way you can think of, okay, a knot performs the function of securing the rope or securing whatever it is that you're tying around with the rope. And so unsurprisingly, in uh, Egyptian uh, belief or Egyptian mythology, the idea of tying a knot was for magical protection. And so he's kind of making this connection here between uh, the, the idea of knots uh, being used. It's like going, well, of course, lots and lots of cultures use the idea of knots and they're almost invariably being used for some sort of protection spell or whatever the case is, because yeah. that's exactly what, that, that's what knots do. Knots protect, not knots, a fix and and yeah. uh, and and tie up. They yeah they secure and keep us safe. The right knots can save us. The wrong knots can kill us. And and we all are tying things all through time. I'm you know I'm going to tie my shoes later today when I get outside. Um, it, to say that there's something special here is a stretch. But again, when you frame it a certain way, you can have your audience feel certain feelings, and they can be pushed to make certain connections primary. When in reality, there's a completely different way of understanding the argument. Yeah. By the way, I don't know who the author of this is. Do you know his name? I, I, I don't. I, I've never seen him before this, watching this video. The reason I say that is we've got a TO who's in the, in the chat and he seems to be pretty, he or she seems to be very passionate about what we're talking about and seems, I haven't been able to follow it exactly, but seems to be coming from the other side of the argument. So. 
I'm just curious if the author of the video is uh, is watching along. I'd love to know, Tio, if you are the author of the video, that would be helpful as we move through it. Um, but anyway, there's that. So not the next one is 942. And this one I thought was kind of interesting. This one is one that 10 years ago, I would have been like, yep, let me put that on my list. Let me make a note of this. Let me put it in my, my file cabinet. Uh, fascinating discovery of undergarments with markings in ancient Christian cemetery in Egypt. Clothing closest to the body is not usually well-preserved. So they're just basically talking about that. But it has, um, let's see here. Small rosettes have been woven into the material in particular locations. There is one rosette. And by the way, a rosette is like a, a circular, like star pattern, floral kind of thing. Um, but rosettes that are woven over each breast and one on the right leg near the knee, but there is no corresponding rosette on the left leg. And across from the lower abdominum, the material also has a hemmed slit about six inches long. And so again, years ago, this one would have been like, I would have gotten goosebumps and I would have shared it in a Sunday school class or maybe even mentioned it over the pulpit at a fast and testimony meeting. I would have gotten everybody excited about this. And, and I'll say even today, as I read this, I'm like, Ooh, that's interesting. That kind of, kind of piqued my interest. I'll say it feels significant. It matches up so well with the lens by which I was raised and trained to see the world. It's okay if some discoveries give us pause or feel significant. The question is, can I weigh it appropriately and rationally against the collective discussion and have it hold the degree of weight that is as close to reality as possible? In other words, um, I'm always trying to picture there's this scale. And in this scale is the evidence that I think is... Um, significant, and I don't mean it has to be super strong, but things that stick out as being significant and things, and then on the other side of the scale, things that don't add up, they're problematic, they're contradictions. They, you know, prophets don't seem to be doing what they say they're supposed to be doing. Uh, history doesn't match the stories we're told. And if we take the actual historical event based on the sources, it seems like Mormonism's truth claims are on shaky ground. And I'm always trying to look at that scale and I'm going to allow you know, one cool thing on this side doesn't satisfy everything on this side of the scale. And so I'm going to allow myself to have things that sit over here. That's allowed. Um, but what it takes for this to be in a certain fashion so that the church could even possibly be true in any way, shape, or form the way it claims to, that scale needs to be a certain way. And um, in, in instances where uh, I have something that seems to like, oh, that seems to indicate maybe the church could have something here. Um, the amount of things it would need to have are so small compared to what's needed for the church to be what it claims that I don't, I don't feel persuaded by things like this. I will open it up. Do you, do you have any thoughts here or did this strike you as kind of cool too? So I, I actually thought it was kind of interesting as well. And I had never read about this and I don't know any other details other than what he's giving here. Right. And so, so I have to kind of take it with a, a 
bit of a grain of salt just because I don't I don't know enough about yeah, and it. And I don't but see however, rosettes in the picture and I don't see I don't see what he's talking about, but I'm sure it's there. Yeah, but I don't, I yeah. don't see it. But but just just taking it at face value, I the, the thing that kind of stuck out to me was this idea of the hemmed slit as opposed to, you know, like a, a, a symbol. And it was it reminded me of a story a, a, a never Mormon friend of mine was was uh, spending spending the evening at her house uh, one time visiting and and uh, I was just wearing my my garment top and so he saw the the symbols in my garments and he kind of looked at that and although you know the the garment top has the three symbols what he went to was the one in my on the the navel the belly button and he goes wait what what is that like why do you have those things on your on your clothes and so I kind of you know started to explain very vaguely what it all meant. And he goes, yeah, my my sister had told me like, if you ever like are sick, what you should do is cut a, cut a slit in your uh, in your shirt, in your navel, and then it, it will help heal you. And so she, he's essentially talking about this kind of folk magic, dark magic, something kind of concept or whatever. And, and he always just thought, oh, I guess Mormons are essentially uh, associated with the, the occult, the dark magic sort of thing because of that, that thing. And so he made this connection to kind of a, kind of a malevolent sort of force because of that symbol. Um, what, what, what does it all mean? I, I don't, I, I tried to go back and see if I could find any reference on the internet that talks about that belief, that concept. Well, obviously it's prevalent enough that, you know, some random friend had just happened to have seen it or whatever. Uh, but apparently other people use this concept of something, some kind of symbol on your navel for healing purposes or whatever the case is. Um, yeah, once once again, if you're thinking about a navel and you're thinking about what is the most common, you know, concept that you can possibly think of with a navel, it's like, well, we know it, we know what belly buttons are useful useful for what they were used for as a as a, a pre-birth you know baby and and uh that's kind of you know but laying all of that aside i i don't know enough about this situation and, and it is an interesting thing it's interesting to me as well yeah and and so in that scale you know say if i put over here i put nhm like that's interesting like i don't know that it's strong but it's interesting uh, you know, Dan Peterson's talked about there's this vague, you know, if you really know what you're looking for, you can see this vague connection to a wedding feast in the Book of Mormon uh, or, or something like what's on the screen right now. And you start putting all these things that you go, these are the evidences that the church is true or, you know, these are the evidences that by which I would go like these, these justify my belief in the church. And then you go all these contradictions over here. And when I look at it with the 20,000 foot view, the, the discrepancy is so huge that having a thing or two over here, by the way, I expect coincidences and I expect that there's no way in the world there wouldn't be at least some things over on this side of the scale. And so again, like you're saying, like I'm saying, interesting, I'd, I'd love to know more, but it by itself or even added with the half dozen other things, it, it just isn't significant compared to the argument that the church is nowhere near anything it claims to be. Okay. Um, all right. Next one. So there's the 942. Let's go to 1023. All right. So here he's talking about these common ideas of uh, gestures. And strangely enough, I mean, is that the Buddha there he's pointing to? By the way, you're, you're muted. I'll have you come back on here for a second. Um, is that the Buddha that he's pointing to? 
Uh, just from the picture, it's it's tough to say. He almost he almost looks like maybe this is somebody from. Uh, 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 the the Ahimsa religion. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the Ahimsa religion here. I, I know but I was it, looking it, up. It, it, it could it could be yeah it could be. I mean, there are poses where the Buddha is in that kind of a pose. And um, again, the meaning associated with Buddha when he's in that pose is completely different than the uh, what the pose means in Mormonism. And so simply pointing to gestures or poses that look similar doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the same thing as going on. Um, and so this idea that people are making gestures that look something like the temple, unless you can show me that those gestures mean the same thing. And by the way, in Mormonism, we have to, we'd have to go back to like the early nineties to understand what those gestures mean. They're often tied to penalties where you will take your own life rather than share the things that you're promising to hold sacred. Um, that's very different than how Buddha approaches this or, you know, again, any religion that has that, I would say, go look at what that means simply pointing out a similar pose means nothing uh, in light of this conversation. Any thoughts from you? Yeah. So, and I, I was thinking now that the kind of the, the artistic style is more of a Jain sort of style, but essentially Buddhism, Jainism, uh, Hinduism, they, they all come out of the, the Dharmic religions. Uh, they, the symbols themselves probably, and I, I can't quite tell, but it looks like maybe he's doing more, more like this, where, where he's where he's almost like the okay symbol, which is more like I'm I'm about ready to give a uh, a sermon, and yeah. so so that that's kind of the sermon. So I'm I'm giving you a teaching. That's that's basically what that means in the in the the Buddhist mudras, yeah. um, and so so even even the hand in kind of a cupping shape down there, yeah, I'm maybe, yeah. but but that's that's not really what they mean in in Buddhism. That's that's not. Uh, not the same symbol, right. but once again, the the symbols themselves these these are things that are in, this is sort of the the entire purpose of the Masonic uh, rituals is to uh, to go in and learn the, the 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 tokens and signs and and passwords and everything like that. So when we're getting into this, it's like going, did he get it from Buddhism? Probably not. Did he get it from Masonry? Probably so. And so the very idea that it's like this somehow ties back the idea that people use hands for to, to make symbolic gestures is everywhere in the world. Yeah. And this one for sure is the Buddha, by the way, notice the swastika. Um, so there again, you've got your compass and your square. Um, but this, again, that same pose, here's Buddha, the hand raised, what, you know, if I was a the Mormon in me, you know, 15, 20 years ago would have looked at this and went, look, Buddha's doing the temple thing. Look at that. And the reality is, as, as we're saying, these mean completely different things. Um, even though this author of this video is trying to make this connection, it really isn't there. He's, um, I remember the apologist saying this term parallelomania, where they felt like the critics were just drawing all these parallels that aren't really there. And I'm just going to say the apologists do it as much or more than the critics uh, when it comes to this sort of stuff. Um, suggesting the Buddha's posture contains connections to the LDS temple postures is preposterous. Um, Buddha is wearing a swastika. Uh, I think you put this, which is a tetragametron again. Um, also noticing, uh, also reminding me of 
uh, Masoji, I think you mentioned this favorite Shinto practices, water purification under the waterfall. Um, I, I had looked this up. I don't have it handy. Let me see if I do real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but <laughs> so if we go down and find the hands of the Buddha are slender, da, 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 right hand is in the mudra of imparting fearlessness, indicating compassion to the Buddha to save suffering, um, signifying the, the, the handout uh, in front of him, uh, signifying that the Buddha truth is eternal and will spread to the 10 directions of the universe. Again, it just means something completely different. Any thoughts from you on that one? Yeah. So, and, and that, that symbol right there is actually the, the primary symbol of Jainism. So the hand, the hand up in this position is essentially taught is, is ahimsa. That's the, 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 the non-harm principle uh, and the basis of the whole Jain religion, which is they won't even, you know, step on an ant because they don't want to kill any, you know, harm any sentient being, whatever the case is. But the, the Misogi thing, this is actually a Shinto thing where what the, 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 when the Shinto, uh, practitioners, what they do is they stand under a waterfall, they meditate under a waterfall, kind of hold their hands in, in this symbol, and then they say the words, Hare tame, kyome tame, rokkon shoujo, which is essentially uh, saying, please, please bless me to purify me of the six, uh, the six entrances to my body. And interestingly, once again, the, the six entrances to my body is talking about my eyes that I may see, my ears that I may hear, my nose, my nostrils, whatever the case is, right? And so, so this idea of saying, I want to be ritually purified with my eyes and my ears and my nose and everything, it's the world over. It's the most common concept that you can possibly do to say, I have this uh, in in Shinto, it's called kegare, or, or which is like a sin, uh, which essentially it's 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 a slightly different concept from sin, but it's basically saying uh, something close you know close enough for our purposes here that uh, they have these sins and they need to ritually purify them. They ritually purify them with water. They are ritually saying the concept of cleansing the eyes and the ears and the and the nostrils, the other openings of the body. Um, and so, so this this very notion of using hand symbols, riddle purification, obviously, it's highly unlikely Joseph Smith got his ideas from Shinto, but yet Shinto was able to come up with the same symbols yeah. because it's not that hard to make a jump from water to to ritual cleansing. It's not that hard to jump from ears to the ability to hear. Now, Shintoism could always have a corrupted view of the endowment, a corrupted, yeah. you know, version of it. But again, now we're adding adding and more conjecture and more allowance. Yeah, over to our observation side. Yes. Love it. Uh, let's go to 1143. And by the way, there's this whole idea of gestures is already present in masonry. So there's already some acknowledgement that the easiest way to make these connections is that Joseph Smith is... Um, tied to masonry. And even the church today acknowledges that much of the endowment uh, overlaps with things that Joseph got from the Masonic tradition. Uh, so here we are at 1143. Again, we have some sort of hand clasp. Here's tokens. The early Christians had what some have referred to as tokens of recognition. Uh, one dictionary of symbols suggests that an esoteric doctrine, the position of the hand in relation to the body and the arrangement of the fingers conveys certain precise symbolic notions. And I'll just note here, um, 
if you take away all the technology of a modern society, there's a different way of doing business in old world that whenever a human being traveled from one location to another, if he needed to convey what his standing was in his society or what his skill set was in order to convey that he was trustworthy, there were certain grasps known essentially as tokens that he could go into some other place and go, I am a trained carpenter. You can trust me because I know the clasp of a trained carpenter. And so there are ways in which uh, folks in the ancient world could convey their skill set or their place in society by having certain keys, secret signs, secret tokens that could convey that information. Um, again, we wouldn't recognize that because of the way modern society works, because we can easily track records and keep track of things. And we've done that for, you know, at this point, hundreds and hundreds of years. But if you go back far enough, there's a different way of doing business. And unless you're aware of that way of doing business, certain connections may seem unique when in reality, they're just not. Any thoughts here? <clears throat> and, and actually, <clears throat> we still use the same language like in computer uh, security. We talk about when you're trying to essentially uh, authenticate what, what, as you're logging into something, uh, you actually use tokens and handshakes in order to do that. They actually call that a handshake to, to go back and forth where you're sending in your uh, your secret code to, to say, here's here's the passcode that I, that I know. And then there's something on the other side that checks to confirm that you have the right passcode code that's called a handshake and so so th th this this concept is the most prevalent idea this this does not prove that the people who programmed and came up with the terms for computer security were you know had this idea revealed to them from god it's just that this is the most common way we talk about of authentication yeah yeah we are doing tokens today aren't we yep yep all right, so passwords, uh, same idea here. You know, these secret words or passwords symbolize fidelity to covenants if they were kept. Like that's one approach, but they meant lots of things and they're used all over the place. Um, so again, just this note, this idea of passwords, it's easy to make connections to the ancient world, but it doesn't necessarily mean that both this connection in the ancient world and Joseph Smith have to be getting it from an invisible God in the sky who's talking to him and because he wants Joseph Smith to restore the true church. That just isn't, isn't uh, the way it works. Uh, any other thoughts on this one? I'll just move to the next one. Yeah, And just, just that you had mentioned that this idea of this, the tokens and passwords and handshakes and whatnot, this is the entire point of the, the Masonic. Uh, uh, it's already there. Yeah, it's, it's there. So we, we have a less exotic explanation for all of this stuff. Right. Perfect. All right. The idea of knocking on the door three times. He gives an Egyptian example. He's talking about inside, uh, I think that's the Roman Catholic Church, perhaps. Um, oh, sorry, Russian Orthodox Church. There's this idea that a that there's a door that enters into a sacred space and that it always has to be three knocks. But as, uh, let me see if I can find my, uh, and I want to be really careful here. So I'm going to mute this first before I don't really want to play. Oop, here we go. Um, let's play. This is the very beginning of a Masonic uh, documentary. So let's play this for just a moment.
Perfect. So we first know right off the bat that this is prevalent in masonry. That becomes the most obvious place that he gets an idea that an initiator shows up at one side of uh, here, in this case, a door, but at one side of a barrier that keeps him from entering in. And he knocks three times and presents himself at the door to the person on the other side. That matches up so cleanly with Mormonism that there's really no need to move any further. But I did move further. And this idea, I just know, my common sense tells me that um, three knocks is just a traditional thing that we see. Here is Tony, Orlando, and Dawn. Um, Let me get this. Notice the name of their song, Knock Three Times. Um, If you know, first off, we've in our society, going back through time, we have collectively agreed on this idea of three knocks. One knock could just be a strange noise outside. I'm not going to go answer my door because there's one weird noise at my door. Um, Instead, and if somebody knocks too many times, it's annoying. So we have all collectively agreed three knocks is how we approach somebody's door. Um, It's everywhere. Here, let's do knocking on, uh, let's put this one up, Wikipedia. Knocking on wood. How many times do you knock on wood? The tradition is when you want something not to happen to you that you just um, said could happen, we say, what, you need to knock on wood. So we knock on wood. How many times? We do it three times. If I do a search here for three, ah, three knocks is the tradition uh, in doing that. Here's another one. What is the meaning of three knocks of death? My, My grandma believed in this. If there were three knocks at the door and she went to answer it and there was nobody there, she was nervous that somebody else would, um, somebody else would die in her family. Um, we were also taught that like, if three people died really close to each other, it was an omen that it was going to be bad luck for everybody in the family. Like there are just these things that are prevalent in society that have to do with number three. And I know you wanted to say a few things on that as well. Yeah, I I was just thinking about, I've spent a little time on the stage and and the idea commonly is with comedy, three, comedy always comes in threes, but it's partially because our kind of human psyche loves that resolution of the third, you know, the joke said the third time. So we, 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 the first two are kind of to kind of give you the pattern and then that third time feels like the resolution. And so that's, that's basically, you know, we, we love threes. We love things to happen in threes. And so, so this idea of three knocks on the door, once again, it's just like, why not 17 knocks on the door? If there, if there were, if there were 17 knocks on the door and then we found this kind of uh, hidden document later that talked about that, oh, in the ancient Israel temple, they did 17 knocks. It's like 17 is a really weird number. Yeah. And so, so that, that would be something where I would higher the number, the more unique it would be. Yeah. Like if it had been 273 exact knocks, then it was like, that's how they start. And then it was like, and Joseph Smith, how could Joseph Smith have known 273? Wow. That's pretty amazing. But three, it's like three is just three is all over in, in sympathetic magic. It's all over in comedy. It's all, we just, we love that resolution of three, just like what you said for the three knocks on the door. It's just, we, we love three. And so Uh, for all of these reasons. But again, we don't have to go anywhere other than masonry to get this. They do three knocks because they're letting the initiate in. Yeah. Three knocks is like water is wet. Exactly. uh, Like like ears here. Yes. (laughs) Right. 
And as you pointed out, as we showed in that little video clip, masonry already does the exact same thing. We don't need to go looking for ancient connections anyway. All right. Next one is um, 1439. Uh, this is this idea of an extended hand. Um, you know, and again, throughout religion, we're trying to answer what is beyond the known. And so there are instances where the hand of God, I'm thinking of uh, what's the artist that painted on the Sistine Chapel, this idea of the hand of God extending out. Now, it's not coming from behind some hidden place, but it is God who's reaching out from heaven, trying to connect with his human children by reaching out to Adam. This idea of hands being reached out within religion from the unknown is, again, a somewhat common concept. Um, but again, he's looking for this ancient connection, but we don't need it. Masonry has the same idea of accepting the initiate in. Um, and so any thoughts here on this one? Yeah, I, I think you basically covered it as well. Perfect. All right, 1340, let's go to um, 1439. 1439, uh, again, using hand gestures, grass signs as a part of ancient culture across faiths. Um, again, I don't see anything here that sticks out to me as something where I have to accept as a as an ancient connection. Any thoughts on this one before I move on? <clears throat> uh, only that it's very interesting that these same exact things do, or some some of the the the, the symbols do exist actually in the Book of the Dead. Uh, there there is a part where essentially the whole point of the Book of the Dead is that the person who just died has to go through this initiation process to get to heaven right and so i loved i loved finding this when i was you know believing mormon because essentially you have to pass by the the angels and gods who stand as sentinels at the doorways and give them secret passwords and and whatnot in order to get into to heaven so once again i saw this and i went oh wow this is obvious you know showing that that joseph smith was spot on but once again everything that i just described is something that is found in masonry as well it's like joseph smith didn't need to find this in uh the egyptian book of the dead because it already exists in masonry yeah perfect um here's the idea of prayer circles all are robed in linen garments they stand in a circle jesus receives a special sign from the disciples and the women he is he has those in the circle have their hands one of the special tokens. Jesus is before an altar. He opens his prayer with coded word or phrase, which he repeats three times. The opening of Jesus' prayer translated as, hear me, my father. Those in the circle repeat the words of the prayer. Um, I'll just note, I when I was investigating the church and I had just joined, the missionaries took me out to teach a investigator and she was a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, we were in her home and she was uh, allowing the missionaries to teach her. And several times during each meeting that we had with her, she wanted us to get into a circle, to hold hands, to say a prayer. I've been at dinner with certain people of faith where they want to hold hands in a circle. Um, when we look at other faith traditions, there are lots of times in other faith traditions where people gather in a circle, they're in some sort of hand clasp. Um, simply having circles, simply having hand clasps isn't significant to me. These other things that this person's putting in, I, I haven't, again, we didn't have enough time to do all this research, but some of these seem a little interesting to me, but they're also things that I would expect to find within religious culture. Um, certainly prayers are going to be said and prayers are going to be said certain ways. We're going to ask the 
uh, deity that we're speaking to to hear us. That makes perfect sense. And that shows up all over the place. Uh, the idea of repetition is all over the place. And what we also need to recognize is that Joseph Smith early on with folk magic also dealt with circles and um, was also a very religious person and dealt with prayer. There were certain incantations that needed to be done, certain ways that words had to be done. There were times it had to be repeated. And again, that number three, as we pointed out earlier, it is just common in religious um, rhetoric that things need to be repeated. And when they're repeated, they're almost always repeated three times. It's not, you don't repeat things five times. You don't repeat it twice in religious rhetoric. It's almost always three times. Any thoughts? I was just, as you were saying that I was thinking of Holy Grail with the Holy hand grenade that the, that the number of times shall be three and it shall yeah. not be two. Yeah. It's, yeah. we love three. Um, I, so I, I had actually found a paper that was written by Michael Quinn and he was just basically talking about prayer circles and, and how, that they were prevalent during the time of Joseph Smith, not just even talking about the Masons, but uh, that it was talking about in, in the 1800s, revivalists collected in small circles of 10 or 12, uh, the Methodist Episcopal revivals in the 1820s and 30s. When the invitation was given, there was a general rush to large prayer ring, uh, prayer rings or circle worship and would, you know, they would pray in circles, essentially, that this was something that would have been available at Joseph Smith's time. Uh, but but once again, but, yeah, but once again, uh, there's ultimately the, the Masons do exactly this, uh, where it appears that the Masons unitedly repeat, repeat the Masonic signs uh, previously received by the brethren. They assemble around the altar and form a circle and stand in such a position to touch each other, leaving a space for the most excellent master who then kneels and joins hands with the others, which closes the circle. And so once again, this I, the, the, the pattern, the form is almost exactly the same as what's going on in the temple. Uh, yeah, of course we can say, we can jump to a more exotic explanation for those things. But again, we have a much less exotic explanation that that sufficiently accounts for why Joseph or where Joseph Smith could have gotten these ideas from. Yeah. I just put that up on the screen. So folks, I, I've also put the link into the comments. So if folks want to go read uh, that, but the moment you have a contemporary source for Joseph Smith, that seems reasonable. You no longer need to go to the ancient source and try to find some kind of divine connection. It's just unnecessary. The, the cat is in the room. We don't need to jump to aliens to get there. Yeah, perfect. All right, next one is uh, 1709. This one, I don't think we need to really say anything. 1709. Um, large collection, early documents. Throughout these texts are references to temple terms such as laver, altar, sacrifice, incense, priest, Levite, high priest. Again, we don't need the ancient connection. It's already in the Old Testament anyway, and we already know that Joseph values the Old Testament temple because of the Book of Mormon. Um, 1845. Uh, let's go here. Okay, so this is the idea of becoming kings and queens. Notice here, Revelation 321 um, through 22. Uh, we already know, too, that the biblical theology of the New Testament is that we are to become like Christ, who becomes like the Father. We already call Christ the King of Kings. Like, that idea is already there. Joseph Smith lives at a time and in a place where his 
country had just separated from a monarchy. There's royalty in their ideology. There's royalty and monarchy in the concepts that they associate and identify and connect with the world around them. Um, so nothing necessary as well. Um, again, I just, there's just nothing outside of Joseph's milieu that we would need to go find an ancient source for this. Any thoughts there? Uh, only that I think it's interesting that it's almost like trying to take the common people who are not royalty and give them the ceremony that makes them feel like they're royalty. And so the idea that uh, the, the, the Masons themselves, you know, uh, appear to have kind of formed together in the 1700s. Maybe it extends back a little earlier than that, but probably not. But the point is, is that it's basically taking these common people and sort of giving them that feeling of, of uh, going through almost like an enthronement ceremony. And so, and, and, you know, literally says this in the, in the Mormon temple talking about becoming kings and priests, right? And so the very idea that they're being kind of walking through sort of an enthronement ceremony probably does come from this very idea. It probably does come from the, the concept of uh, the enthronement of, of the, the, the actual royalty that they, that they came from. So there may be a connection here, but there's probably a connection <clears throat> for the same reason that there's a connection in the, the, the Masons. And then also I wanted to point out his use of the word perhaps here. He says he, they, they use, he uses the word perhaps several times in that paragraph. Uh, and again, this is more like that last uh, equation that we were looking at with the putting God on both sides of the equation in order to get this. Perhaps, you know, let's let's pretend like that there is uh, some observation and so that we can reach this other, you know, uh, pretend a theory so we can reach a theory sort of thing. Yeah. That's a, that's essentially what that paragraph's doing there. Notice certain language, folks. When you're when you're <clears throat> listening to someone defend the church, notice the what if, perhaps maybe could have been um we don't know but it's going to need us to require you know we're going to have to have faith anytime someone suggests faith at what you say they're basically saying like let's just put the data aside and let's just believe anyway um these same kinds of things happen with these words perhaps maybe what if as soon as someone acknowledges that you almost can be certain they are doing the thing spencer is talking about which is they want to take things on one side and take them out or they want to take things on the other side and add them in. Um, there's some sort of word game being played here where they're trying to create space in your head when the data doesn't really have the space on its own. So I, I call this straddling the equation, right? It's so, so essentially, anytime, I mean, sure, somebody could show me another example that maybe doesn't fit this, but every example I have ever seen of someone invoking the term faith, they're putting theory on the observation side. The, the, yeah. the whole purpose of faith, the whole purpose of even needing to invoke the word faith in the first place is so you can put theory on the observation side so that you can come to your theory. I feel good. Hence, I'm going to ignore the rational argument. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, um, so there's that. Let's go to the next one. Uh, we are at 1846. So now we'll be 2017. And I think this is going to end up well. We got about seven minutes left and just a couple of slides left to do. 2017. So here's the idea of uh, a procession of some sort. Coronation and other enthronement rites often begin with processions or marches, which can include the entrance of royalty, heads of state. Da -da -da -da. He says sacred rooms that are prepared for coronation ceremonies. So people proceed to an end location 
where sacred things are going to happen, such as a new king is or a new queen is is uh, uh, is uh, has a coronation upon them. Right. Sacred music often accompanies this. Again, I hope people are noticing. Can you sense how much of a stretch this is? This idea will be everywhere. These are basic themes to human ritual and human myth. We always need any moment we lost one king to death and we're going to coronate a new one. We need some marker in place that says at this moment, that person took place, uh, took over leadership. And so rituals uh, and rites are often meant to be outward indicators of a moment in time where something has transpired or occurred. So in every religion, in every political system, in every, you know, when, when President uh, Biden went up to the stand and puts his hand on a Bible and says certain words, there are certain rites that are meant. And even in that presidential thing, there are certain processions that take place in that day of activities. Just notice there's nothing special going on here. This is what humans have been doing for a few thousand years at a minimum. Any thoughts here? Uh, only to emphasize your word stretch there. I, I think of everything that is in this video, this is probably the greatest stretch to say that people walk into a building to in order to have a ceremony. It's like, <laughs> how, how else do you get to have a ceremony if people don't walk into the building? But right. anyway, lay, laying that aside, I just I, I want to reemphasize as well that the, the guy the, the guy is looking, you know, the, the guy who made this video is looking for uh, looking for things. Obviously, he stretched with this one. This is the most stretchy thing, but probably in the same frame of mind that in back in my Mormon days, I would have been happy about this too. Yeah. All right. So here's this idea that that initiants will be given a new name. He's pointing at all these ancient sources, somewhat modern, and then even really ancient. Ancient Egypt, pharaohs received a throne name as opposed to a temple name. Again, first off, this is completely uh, unnecessary simply because in masonry, if I type, if I look for new name, look at that. I also present you with a new name. So it's already in masonry that somebody gets a new name. Hence, we don't need to look further. But if we are going to look for it further, it is prevalent all throughout the world. A religious name. If we go through all these different faiths, people receive a different name. Uh, it's not just Christianity. It's all the religions of the world. They all do it. Uh, Buddhism specifically, a Dharma name, and then Hindu religion specifically. Um, a name change on religious conversion. This is a just a common concept that happens in all religions that when you go from being an outsider to an insider, certain things happen which you now have to have a name change. And it's also prevalent inside uh, the scriptures anyway. Um, let me get rid of that. It's already prevalent inside the scriptures anyway because Saul is changed to Paul Abram is changed to Abraham. Like Joseph already knows inside of his own milieu that when conversion takes place, when God begins to communicate to somebody and they transition from an outsider to insider, a name change occurs. Any thoughts here? Uh, only just to kind of go back to kind of generally what we're talking about here with the idea of uh, accounting for observations, accounting for evidence, accounting for facts with a theory. And so what, what's happening in this video is that he's kind of doing the, the sharpshooter fallacy, right? So what he's doing is he's taking a very small subset 
of observations and trying to account for those with essentially the, the theory that he wants to be the solution, right? And so what we have been doing in this all this time is talking about all of these other observations that he like the swastika or or whatever the case is that he doesn't want to kind of consider while he's coming up with his theory but unfortunately if we're going to be rational thinkers we have to account for all of these things we have to account for why does why does shinto have a washing you know and and talking about cleansing the ears and the eyes and everything like that why does why do the new names exist in Buddhism? And so so in order to, to come up with a rational explanation, well, again, go, going back to what you had said, you know, maybe an hour or so ago, well, maybe there was some common religion that was common to all of them, and all of them really descended from from you know Judaism or whatever. But again, <clears throat> that's a what if, right? That's a what if that takes much more conjecture than just saying. These are the number three is a totally common thing to do with Knox. That the ears, common symbolism of ears is to hear. The idea that these things are just all over the world is because that's how we think about these symbols. They they perform the ears perform a literal function of hearing, and so symbolically we think of them as ears to hear. Water performs a literal function of cleansing, and so symbolically we think of it as cleansing with water. It didn't take some person to come bring this knowledge down to the different the different groups of people all over the world. It just comes from the idea that that's what we use water for. That's what we use ears for. And so obviously they become common symbols. And so, but the point with all of this is when you're trying to account for all of this evidence, you have to account for all the evidence, not just the evidence that you want to look at in order to come to your conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then the last slide here, 2107, there's more slides, but I, I just didn't see anything that was worth covering. It's kind of him wrapping up. Um, but 2107, washing and anointing, the coronation ceremony for Thai King Maha. Again, he's doing the work for us, right? Like he's showing like, look, this is just common stuff that's found in themes throughout the world. We, at the very beginning of the slideshow, I put up two Wikipedia pages that had to do with ritual purification and with washing and anointing. And they are found throughout various religions uh, going across time and space. Um, this just isn't anything new. It's already in the Bible itself. There isn't any need to go like, hey, all of the religions across time and space all have some sort of insight into Heavenly Father's revelation. And hence Joseph Smith connected with it too. And hence the church is true. When in reality, the the critical thinker goes like, I would expect to find washing and anointing within the religion that Joseph Smith creates because it's in the religion he came from and it's in his milieu and it's all across time and space as a common concept that religious cre myth creators come up with. Any thoughts there? Just that I agree. That, uh, the, uh, this is kind of the, the, the basic theme and, and concept that we've been going through. So okay. I didn't know like, if we'd get it done in two hours, Spencer, but we did it. I think we did great. Yeah. Perfect. Love it. We're not going to be as charismatic or as exciting as that guy's video that we just covered. But I think that at the end of the day, critical thinking should always win. And I think we showed that rationally this video is just not as exciting as it looks on the first, uh, first glance. Any conclusion thoughts from you before we close? Just thanks so much for having me. And this was lots of fun to, to go through this video. I I just, once again, I just want to say I would have been exactly in the same situation as that guy, totally starry-eyed, excited, because I was starry-eyed and excited. I loved reading 
Nibley's Temple and Cosmos and all those those books yeah. because I wanted to find something, right? I wanted to find these connections that help support my belief. But that's the whole point. I really, really wanted it to be true. And so I'll do everything I can to put the the my my want into, you know, smuggle my want into the observation side in order to come up with a theory that I want. Love it. <laughs> Folks, if you're watching this right now on YouTube, would you please hit the subscribe button? Hit the like button. The more of you that hit the like button, the more this shows up in other uh, other folks' uh, uh, YouTube searches and and th as they're looking at other things today. Um, just really want to make sure that we get some some coverage of this. And then also, folks, we survive on donations. We're a federally approved nonprofit, five hundred one c three. If you would go to Mormon Discussion, uh, Mormon Discussions dot uh, org or Mormon Discussion Podcast dot org or mdpodcast.org. Uh, click the donate button and just send us a few bucks. Uh, Spencer and I here spent a couple of hours kind of chatting about this, and this is what we do week in and week out. It's how uh, our nonprofit survives. Spence, thanks so much for uh, being on today, and I really appreciate your friendship, and I really appreciate your brain. You, you have been more than anyone else in my world. You have helped me to think rationally and critically about it in ways that I no longer tolerate the BS that comes out of apologetic arguments. Um, and I just want to say thank you for who you are and all the work you put in to be a critical thinker. Thanks, Bill. And I appreciate your friendship too. And I really, really appreciate our, our discussions. They've actually, they've helped me be a rational thinker as well. So, so I, I think it's, the feeling is very mutual. Love it. Love it. Folks, it all came from masonry for the most part and anywhere else it's in his world. Uh, have a great day and uh, hope you folks enjoyed it. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.